Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. All right, grab your Bibles. Romans chapter 8 is where I would love for you to be. Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34 is going to be our text this morning. Uh, As we're considering what is about to change in our society as a state tonight, um, at midnight with the new mandates that come out, I want to just remind you that those mandates make provisions for religious gatherings of 25 or more. So we will be back here next week because the government can't mandate the church (laughs) per se. So we thank you for cooperating with the social distancing guidelines and and we encourage you to do so. And we are going to continue to clean our facility as best we can. So we are in this series called Love. And this is in light of the fact that for the last 13, 14 weeks, since we started in a glimpse of glory in that sermon series, we found out that at the core of who God is as Trinity is loving relationship, right? Love itself lies at the core of who he is and out of all of that, out of that flows a lot of how he interacts with us. And so if we're gonna rightly understand God, we've gotta understand his love for us. So we're gonna be in this series this week and next week and we're not gonna be talking about it on a horizontal level. We're not talking about how to love your neighbor. We're talking about how to stand in the light of God's love for us, how we can appropriate that to our lives. And one of the things that we're learning Pretty much the premise of this whole series is this truth statement. In Christ, let's read it together. In Christ, God loves you. He is for you. And nothing in the universe can change that. Switch out the words you for me. In Christ, God loves me. He is for me. And nothing in the universe can change that. Now, last week, we pretty much took some time looking at the first part of that. In Christ, God loves you and he is for you, right? He is for you, not like a cheerleader or a butler. He's like a good father, right? He is for you in that context. In that way, he loves us. But we're going to be talking about the second part of that statement, which is nothing in the universe can change that. Because what if it could? What if there was something in the the universe today that could change the first part of that sentence? In Christ, God does not love you. What if something could change that? I mean, deep down, every human felt need, a common felt need that all humans have is the feeling of needing to be loved. And probably one of the greatest terrors that we face or fight against is the terror of being unloved, right? What if somebody doesn't love me? What if there's nobody who loves me? Imagine how terrorizing that would be. I mean, what, what, what is something that could take love away, right? What, what, if, what if I'm in a relationship and what, could, what is something that could end love in that relationship? Maybe a personal failure, right? Maybe a misstep, maybe a bad judgment call on my part. Something could cut off that love in some way. Especially as we experience it in the human life. Guys, one thing could potentially cut off love in some of our relationships. Let me give you an example. I read an article this week from back from 2015. It's from the New York Times. And in this article, it talks about a, a woman named Justine Seiko. You may have heard of her, right? In the holiday season of 2013, 30-year-old Justine Seiko, senior director of corporate communications at the media tycoon AIC, get along with that, in New York City, 
planned a vacation to visit family in South Africa, right? So she's in New York City getting ready to head to South Africa, and she's a corporate tycoon person, right? So it's just crazy on the charts. So she starts her long journey across the globe, and as she starts it, she begins tweeting, you know, Twitter tweeting? She begins tweeting some satirical nonsense about the indignities of international travel, of flying, right? It's just, there's some things that are just strange about it. You do things in flights that you don't typically do in normal life. So she starts tweeting about some things. So on the flight from JFK, she tweeted about another passenger on the plane saying this. This is what she said, quote, weird German dude. You're in the first class. It's 2014. Get some deodorant. Inner monologue as I inhale BO. Thank God for pharmaceuticals. It's kind of insulting in some way. Then when she landed at Heathrow, she tweeted this, chili, cucumber sandwiches, bad teeth, back in London. Okay, apparently those are stereotypes. And then on December, 20, December 20th, before the final leg of her trip to Cape Town, South Africa, she tweeted this, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. Now, let's just pause and understand that's fundamentally wrong, super insensitive, and we don't celebrate that, right? So we, we don't sit here and be like, oh, yeah, that's funny. There's, there's not, that's not satirical in a sense, right? There's something harsh there and insensitive. So let's just make sure that we're on the same page. I'm not celebrating that. That's not the point of the story. But that's a bad judgment call that she made and see what happens. Continuing on in her story, Justine posted the tweet before she got on her plane to Cape Town, right? And she only had 170 followers on Twitter. She boards the plane, she closed down her phone, which I don't know why you do this anymore. There's no flip phones anymore. They don't do that anymore. And she falls asleep for the 11 hour trip there. She falls asleep, phone off everything. She lands in Cape Town. She turns on her phone and right away she gets a text from a friend back in high school that she hasn't talked to since high school. And the text just simply said, I'm sorry to see what's happening. So, of course, Justine is just totally confused and baffled. Like, what does that even mean? Then quickly another text comes in. You need to call me immediately. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. It was from her best friend, Hannah. Then her phone just exploded with more texts and more alerts, and then it rang. It was Hannah, her best friend. She said to Justine, you are the number one worldwide trend on Twitter right now. In those 11 hours from Heathrow to Cape Town, tens of thousands of angry tweets built up, hit the feeds in her response to her insensitive sarcasm. Charges of racist ignorance and bigotry started piling up digitally. And they all called for her to be fired from her job. Workers were threatening to strike at the hotels she had booked in Cape Town if she showed up to those hotels. She was even told that nobody in South Africa could secure or guarantee her safety. She talked to a reporter about what the first 24 hours of that was like. This is what she said. 
I cried out my body weight in the first 24 hours. It was incredibly traumatic. You don't sleep. You wake up in the middle of the night forgetting where you are. So she, she released a quick apology statement and then cut her vacation short. Ended up back in the U.S. And just three weeks later, she was packing up her office. She had been fired. Four months later, she came to the hard reality that she was no longer dating material because she was single. And because simply one Google search could pull up her whole background. And who's going to start dating somebody who's a racist bigot? All of this from one single unsavory satirical tweet and she was charged as a racist bigot and condemned to lose her job. She received death threats. She was forced to hide in shame from the rest of the world and she's still in hiding today. The world hated her now. One single tweet, somebody with a circle of friends now hated universally, charged and condemned. As in, this is, this is just one of countless stories that this article talked about with this kind of thing. But I'm assuming that we're not, like this isn't strange to us. Like we're actually kind of familiar with this. Maybe not on the global scale, but maybe in our own families. Right? One single thing could cut off a family tie. Right? We're kind of familiar with this. Whether we've seen it in stories like Justine's or maybe even on our own. So, so we, we, we're familiar with this and we see how easily something like this could blow up in a relationship. And so because it's so easy to be a part of the human experience in that way... Why wouldn't it also be true of God? Why wouldn't it also be true that we could lose God's love in some way? Think about it. He knows every single one of our failures and moral misgivings. He's perfect. He's just. Why would it be any different from him? So Paul answers that question in the two verses that we're gonna be looking at today. That question, why would it be any different with God? Why couldn't we lose his love? And what I wanna do before we even read, read the text, I just wanna premise it with this. So for those of you who like believe that you just have too much of a past, like you've got some stinky closets because there's too many skeletons in there or you're dragging too much baggage, or for those of you who right now are think you're just too in too far, where you're caught up in too much stuff right now that God's love for you is about to run out. If that's you today, then this word, what we're gonna be studying is very much for you. So let's, Let's get after this. Let's start back where we began last week in verse 31. We're going to get all the way through verse 34. So it says this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who shall be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
Will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? Here's the new part. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That's the first question and answer. Second question, who shall or who can condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of the, of the Father, the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So this morning, that's the word of the Lord. This morning, we're just gonna go through the first question and answer and the second question and answer. And we're breaking it up into two main parts for what we're gonna be talking about, just like last week. So if you're thinking uh, in light of what we talked through last week, the points that we're talking about today are just continuing that, right? So we're actually on points three and four, continuing from last week. So today's gonna be broken up into the divine verdict, the divine verdict, and the divine intercession. The divine verdict and the divine intercession. So let's first talk through this thing called the divine verdict. The question posed is, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge? And by charge, we mean accusation of wrongdoing, right? We, 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 it's like a plaintiff going before court to bring up charges against the defendant in a courtroom. So think of a courtroom language here. That's the context of this, this verse. And in this case, the, the, the plaintiff is bringing charges against who? God's elect, right? Which is another way to say the capital C church, the, those who have been foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified according to verses 28 and 29. So already put yourself in the courtroom and you are the one on trial. We, God's Beloved are on trial here, and there's a plaintiff bringing charges. You and I who are in Christ are on trial in this text. And the question Paul is posing to us is this. Who is able to stand as a plaintiff at the plaintiff desk and bring to the judge evidence of wrongdoing? Who, who can bring evidence before the judge of us law-breaking, of our law-breaking, of us breaking the law. Who can stand as plaintiff? <laughs> well, geez, Paul, I can think of a lot of people. I can think of a lot of things that could stand at the plaintiff desk and bring charges against me. All right, so thanks for asking. Oh, goodness. So how, how, how could Paul say who can bring a charge against us, right? They, they brought charges against Jesus. The charges weren't even true, and what happened with him? Nailed to a cross. He was crucified on those charges. Who, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Of course people can bring charges against us. I mean, doesn't Satan do that constantly? Isn't his name the accuser? The accusationer is what I'll say. That's not even a word, but good luck with it. This guy is the king of accusations. So couldn't, couldn't Satan stand at the plaintiff desk and bring charges against us? Or what about the law? What about God's commands? Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't our failure to keep the law perfectly go before God and say, hey, they messed up here. Condemn them for it. 
Or what about our own consciences? The fact that we cross our own consciences bear witness that we are guilty. Our conscience constantly bears witness to just how evil we are. Right? Despite how, how seared or calloused our hearts or our consciences may be. Because all of these things could potentially bring charges against us that could stand, right? But the way Paul structures this verse, the way he poses the question, is leading us to the obvious rhetorical answer. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? What is the obvious answer here? Yes or no? No. No one. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. God's chosen. That's the obvious answer. Absolutely no one can. Why? Why can't anybody stand at the plaintiff desk and bring charges against us as God's beloved? Well, what does Paul say next? He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. He's not just simply talking about the fact that we are justified. Notice how he's saying, no, God is the one who justifies us. The emphasis isn't on the act itself. It's on the actor who's the one who did the justifying, right? So let's just be clear about something. To be justified means to be acquitted of all charges, right? There can be no charges brought before the throne because all lawbreaking has been declared null and void in the believer, right? They have been declared righteous by God, understanding righteous to be perfectly keeping the law, So God has declared you and me in Christ to be perfectly keeping the law. Even though we know we haven't. Even though we know we've failed time and time again. All the demands of the law have been fulfilled. And so what Paul is saying in this text, when he says God is the one who justifies, there's two two main things. First, this is emphasizing, one, that God did all the work. Did you do your justifying? Mm -mm. No, you don't have a case strong enough to declare yourself perfect. You know we're all weak. God did all the work to legally and fully declare you and I righteous. As you and, I, you and I both know, if we're going to be honest, right? I'll be honest with you if you can be honest with me. If we can be honest with ourselves, you and I have the tendencies to think that when we string a few strong days of good devotionals in the morning together, or when we punish our kids in a way that is godly, God's just, we, we have this tendency to think that God's just on his throne, just like, wow, that's impressive. Woo. Getting it done there, man. Well done. No, that's not it. What Paul is saying here is you don't even have to justify yourself. God does it for you. How? In Christ's death on the cross, the Father poured out all of his wrath, every drop on his own son that our law-breaking deserved. And instead... 
this divine judge attributes to our accounts, or the legal word or the theological word is imputes to our account the righteousness of Christ, the perfection of Christ, the moral law keeping in all of it of Christ is imputed to us. That's what it means to be justified. And God did all the work. God did every part of our justifying so that we don't have to. I mean, imagine going into a courtroom where you know you're guilty of what you did, of of the charges that are being brought, and you know the sentencing is gonna be severe. You're gonna avoid that courtroom at all costs because the judge is just gonna rightly declare you condemned. But we have a God who said, no, justified. They've kept the law perfectly. So can you feel the force of the freedom that that brings to your soul? All the charges are dropped. Now, to be clear, this isn't meant to make the unbeliever in here more comfortable on their way to destruction. But this is to assure the believer that their salvation is secure. God is the one who did all the work. That's what this is saying. God is the one who justifies. The second part about that truth is this, that God is the highest court. God is the highest court, right? So in our government system, right, we've got the executive, judicial, and the other one, I don't, legislative, that's right, nobody cares about it. I'm just kidding, I care about our government. <laughs> our judicial system, which we've been paying attention to a lot recently, it's got a system of appeals that allows us to appeal to a higher authority for judgment, mm-hmm. which ultimately, what body is at the top of our judicial system? The Supreme Court, right? The Supreme Court. Notice the word Supreme. It stands above all other courts in our government. In our government, is there anyone higher that you can appeal to in our government than the Supreme Court? No, they are the final word. And their word stands for centuries in our government. So that's why we've been paying attention to it recently, right? There's no one else to appeal to in our government system. Whatever the verdict they announce, that's what stands. And yet, for the believer, there is a higher throne. There is a higher authority. There is a higher appeal to make. God is the highest court. There is a higher counsel. Above God, there is no other. Beside God, there is no other. There is not a higher tribunal. There is no higher authority to appeal to than God himself. And once the verdict has been declared by God, no force can change that verdict, nor can any man appeal that call or call it to a mistrial, nor can they look for other counts to charge you against anymore. God's sentence is final And forever, it stands supreme. So I just need to bring this up real quick. For all of you who grew up in homes where there was only charge after charge after charge, critique after critique after critique, calling out your failure 
after failure after failure. And you never heard an encouraging word. Or for those of you who are just like in this very moment, so burdened down by your own self indictments, who seem to be so wired to bring constant charges against yourself with such oppressive and paralyzing effects. Hear me now, if that's you, 833, Romans 833 is the remedy for your soul. 833 is God's medicine and cure for the paralysis that comes from charges that are levied against you. The remedy is totally undeserved, right? Freely given of grace, never being charged successfully with any failure before God. That's grace. Because it is truly a small thing to be judged by man. Truly a small thing. God is the righteous, perfect judge and he is the highest authority. And he is, his opinion is the only one that really counts about who you are. And because God has justified us, there is nothing that we can be accused of any longer. And if there's no charge, then there's no shame. So if you are embarrassed or ashamed, then you've not rightly understood justification because there can be no charges levied against you anymore. Jesus bore all our shame because he took every charge. So whether the criticism that I receive is true or not, the charges that are levied against me doesn't matter. Jesus stood condemned in my place. And my confidence is his righteousness, not mine. I praise God that I don't have to go before the throne and say, hey, here are my filthy rags. I get to go before the throne. You and I as brothers and sisters get to go before the throne wrapped in the royal white robes of righteousness that Christ has bestowed upon us. And we get to stand forever with him. Jesus is our one defense. This is the divine verdict. This is who in you and I are as believers in Christ. God's verdict, justified. That was supposed to be a gavel. That was a bad idea. No more high fives. Guys, no one can overturn this. No one can change this verdict, which is actually what's going to lead us into our second part for this morning. And I think my remote's about dead. So Luke, would you be able to jump on that real quick? The divine intercession. This is, this is technically point four, continuing the whole series. The divine intercession. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. The divine intercession. So the next question that Paul poses is what? Who is to Condemn. Who can condemn? So the first question dealt with charges that could be levied against us. But if all charges have been acquitted because we've been justified by God himself, then who can sentence us to death and destruction, to utter peril? Who can sentence us to that? In other words, who can change God's mind? Does Satan or anybody else in the universe have the power to reverse God's decision of justified? The obvious answer 
Absolutely no one. Absolutely no one. Guys, this chapter, chapter eight, verse one, starts off saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And now this same chapter is ending with the same promise. No one can condemn us to destruction. Why? Paul gives us four reasons. First, Jesus died. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. Jesus died. That's the first thing he says. Who can condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, right? So um, some of you may know the guy named Martin Luther. I'm not talking about Martin Luther King. I'm talking about Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, about 513 years ago, I think, 500 something. And they, uh, he, he was the leader of the Reformation. And uh, he wrote in, in a story, wrote in his journal about how he would regularly experience Satan coming into his study at night. And they would have a conversation. Whew. Boy, oh boy. That's beyond a nightmare. So Satan would come in and he would lay out for him all of his sin. You're the worst sinner. You think you'll be able to reform the church? Look at all the things you've done. Then, then he'd, he'd lay it all out. And Luther, Luther never denied the accusations. His response was always this. You know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. All these charges are true and are enough to condemn me, but you've left out one vital piece. All of them have been covered by the blood of Jesus. There is no more condemnation for me because Jesus died. His blood was shed for me. So because Jesus died, there is now therefore no condemnation. No one can condemn us. Here's reason number two. Jesus lives. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. Jesus lives. He says, Jesus died. More than that, he was raised. He was raised from the dead. So 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that because Jesus has been raised from the dead by the love of the Father, our justification is sure. Christ's justifying work on the cross is vindicated by his resurrection. It's proven by it. So the resurrection is ultimately God's just massive declaration. It's finished. The check has cleared. The debt has been paid. Justice has been served. Guilt has been removed. Condemnation for sin has been totally executed. And there's no more left for those who are in Christ. So because Jesus lives after dying, God's verdict over us is secure and no one can condemn us because the law and the lawgiver have been satisfied. Here's the third reason. Jesus sits. Say that with me, one, two, three. Jesus sits. Jesus died, Jesus raised, and now he's at the right hand of God. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. So after Jesus was risen and he ascended into heaven, he was exalted to the highest place of authority, which is at the right hand of God, according to Ephesians 1.20. And Jesus in Matthew 26 describes that as the right hand of power. So this is literally the highest place of honor and authority in existence today and for eternity. 
other than the throne itself. So this means that Jesus Christ has been given all authority on heaven and on earth. And you want to know what he's doing with that authority? Do you want to know? Obviously, we know Matthew 28, he sends us out to go make disciples. That's another sermon for another day. But what else is he doing with that position of authority? Fourth reason, he intercedes. Jesus intercedes. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. Jesus intercedes. So Jesus died, Jesus lives, Jesus sits, and Jesus intercedes. That's the reason why no one can condemn us. What does it mean when we say he intercedes, right? He's at the right hand of the God. He is indeed interceding for us. When we think of intercession, we think of it as a prayer term, right? I'm gonna go between this planet, this man or woman or thing and God, and I'm gonna lift it up and I'm gonna pray for it. I'm gonna go between it. That's what we think of when we think of intercession. I will prayerfully intercede on behalf of this person. That's part of the term, but actually the term intercession or intercede, it's legal jargon. We're back in the courtroom again. We're back in the courtroom. It's legal. The verb intercede means to advocate for. It means to argue for. In other words, Jesus, who has been exalted to the highest place of authority, is our lawyer. He's our advocate. He's making the case for us. So not only is God declared here in this text as the justifying judge who rules in favor of his chosen at the expense of his own son. So he's that, not only that, but the judge's own son stands with us at the defense desk. He's our divinely appointed attorney, the DA. And he's constantly pleading our case before the father. This is what Hebrews 7.25 says. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Jesus, since Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. Just as secure as Jesus' resurrection is and his life eternal, so also is his intercession for us. So in this divine intercession, Satan comes before the father. Think of this. We're back in the courtroom. You and I were at the defense table. And when we first started out, we felt helpless. We had no case and a bunch of accusations. But now after studying this, picture it differently. Satan stands at the table, the plaintiff table. He comes before the father with his list of accusations, which just the scroll keeps going. Lord, I have evidence against this person that they've committed this crime, that they've broken the law in this way and the law demands their death. They did this and this and so on and they did this here and they didn't do that there. They failed in this command here. They broke this law there. And on every accusation, Satan is right. And the universe holds its breath. But Jesus stands. But he doesn't issue an apology on our behalf. Well, my client is sorry and they won't do it again. 
nor does he try to plead for a lesser sentence. Hey, he'll plead guilty to this if you just give him a lesser thing, right? No, Jesus stands and with the voice of a lion roars across the courtroom. I've covered his sin with my blood. She has been bought with my life. They are mine, case closed. And the prosecution just sits silent because they know they've lost the case for eternity. And they don't have anything more to bring forward because Christ died, was raised, is seated, and is interceding for us. All condemnation has been removed and the verdict stands forever. Nothing can change it. And just as Charles Wesley puts it in his hymn, and can it be, you got to sing it with me because I don't like this by myself. No condemnation now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine. Isn't that it? We have no more condemnation to fear. This is God's intercession. This is what this means. God intercession is the fact that Jesus is our advocate. This is the declaration. Jesus is our lawyer. He's the one pleading his blood before the father in face of all the accusations that could be levied against us. And they rendered them powerless. This is just how much God loves you and he is for you and nothing in the entire universe could ever change that. God, the the judge declared you justified and then he set you up with the best attorney of eternity who is pleading the most excellent, unshakable case any courtroom has ever seen, a case that is even so scandalous, more scandalous than the OJ trials. Your salvation is is secure because God loves you and nothing can change that. This is God's love. And yet sometimes we doubt it, right? We're actually prone to that. Our assurance of our salvation, which is something that Wesley very much pushed that that was in light of or in the face of the Catholicism that we were reforming out of because in, in, in Catholicism, there's not much security in salvation. But John Wesley himself was pushing the assurance of salvation. You can know that you are saved. And that is directly tied to God's love for us. So our love or our understanding of God's love for us directly connects to our assurance and security in our salvation. And our assurance in our salvation is undermined ultimately when charges are brought against us. And we begin to fear that those charges could end with our condemnation and being cut off from God's love. And so when Satan comes into your room and he says, you don't deserve salvation. You say, 
Oh, I know. But Jesus died. When the world laughs at you and says, you, you, you're, you're a Christian? I know you. I know what you were like in fifth grade. I know what you did that many. I know the skeletons in your closet. How could you be a Christian? When they levy those charges against you, you just simply say to them, yeah, oh, I know, I know. But it is Christ who died and God says, I'm justified. Or when your conscience, that moral compass inside of you, tells you that your passion for God is not hot enough, which I think a lot of us can touch on that one. You tell your conscience, I know, but it is Christ who lives to intercede for me. Or when God's law points out long patterns of sin in your life and failures to measure up, the answer is this. Yes, yeah, I know, I know, I know. But there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law cannot condemn you anymore. So you don't need any other defense, right? You don't need to prove that you're worthy of having faith in Jesus, right? You don't need to prove that God was right and good in his decision to save you. You don't have to prove that. The whole point of faith is to recognize that you and I are not worthy of being saved, but because God loves us in Christ, he makes us worthy. So do you hear heaven's bells ringing? As it's singing an age old song. The sweet song that says your salvation is sure and unshakably secure for Christ has died and lives forevermore. This is God's love for you. This is amazing no more charges, no condemnation, just justifying and interceding love. Come on, church. How many times am I gonna have to tell you that God loves you, he is for you, and nothing in the universe can change that? I recognize that there's still those who need convincing. I recognize that there are those who may be tuning in online or here with us now who just aren't quite there yet. Last week, we worked through an exercise of, of searching circumstances or happenstances in our lives and how they conflict with our receiving God's love. This week, it's not about that. This week, it's about my own moral failures, about the skeletons in the closet, the mess-ups, and the heartbreaks. As maybe you've got a divorce in your past, 
And Satan just keeps bringing it back up. And all you feel is shame time and time again. Or maybe you have a wayward child who wants nothing to do with God. And Satan has charged you with the guilt of that. Or maybe you've been caught up with drugs and alcohol for too long. And you ever, you always think, how could God even love me? If that's you this morning, then the only thing that I can do is say to you again and again, In Christ, you can be declared righteous and nothing can condemn you. That is God's love for you. If God in his joy was willing to look at Scott Brutt and say, I want that man in my family I will declare him righteous by the death of my own son so that he can be with me for eternity. If he can do that for Scott Brud, as filthy a wretch I am, he can do it for you. Some of you need to come and stand in the light of that. So I want to invite you to not just simply walk out at the end of this and just have a few thoughts for the rest of the day to think on. I want all of us to walk out of here standing on the confidence of God's love that rids of all charges and condemnation. So don't leave here today without coming to talk with some of our leaders here. Come and talk with me. I'd love to walk with you and pray with you because it's a supernatural understanding that has to take place here. So let me pray for us. Father, we come to you and we are truly overwhelmed. If this be your love for us, there is no greater love that we've ever found. And since this is your love for us, we delight in you. God, you remove all guilt and shame. You take away all condemnation and you give us the perfection of your son. How does that make sense? It doesn't. But God, you're the highest judge and you're perfect in all of your ways. And you made the way for guys like me and girls like me to come before a perfect God and not be condemned by the law that he gave, but stand in the light of the love of this God because of the son of Jesus, or because Jesus the son. So God, I praise you that this is the gospel that we get to herald. I praise you that this is the kind of love that we get to not just know, but to experience in everyday life. And I pray, Lord, for those here that we would truly press deep into understanding and experiencing what it means ultimately to know and walk in your love for us because your love is fierce.
God, would your love rush in and convince the weary soul that they can be right with you. God, we do love you. And we thank you for your love for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.